Welcome to episode 4 of the Tiny Tales podcast, a podcast that features a wide range of genres of fiction and poetry. The Last Laugh by Jim Shaffer She perched in a patch of sunlight on the top step of the porch, her feet apart on the next step down, forearms resting on her knees. With the two top buttons open, a thin white cotton blouse stretched revealingly across heavy breasts. Dangling between her breasts, a solid gold heart sparkled and flickered in the sun. I spoke in code. Excuse me, heard you've a flat for rent. I'd come to kill her husband. The deal prearranged, stamped, approved and half paid for. She looked up. Red lacquered nails caught the light as her hand moved up to her rosy puckered lips that drew deep on a cigarette and blew out a stream of blue smoke. Well, come on in. It's safe. He's down at the firehouse getting drunk. Safe or not, I pushed through the gate. She stood, skin-tight white jeans cut off just above the knee, complimentary to natural hourglass figure that would make most women envious and give all men wicked dreams. Barefoot, toenails painted pharyngeal red to match her fingernails and fitting with her abusive husband, the small-town local fire chief. Have a seat, we both sat. I shared a patch of sunlight next to her. You aren't what I expected, she said. She fondled the gold heart, rubbed it between her fingers like a magic amulet. What did you expect? Taller, bigger, meaner looking? She tossed her cigarette into the yard. I'm wearing my disguise. Yeah? Yeah, in real life I'm much taller. She laughed. Making a woman laugh, let alone one who'd hired me to kill her husband, is like receiving an unexpected gift. When was the last time you laughed? She fingered the corner of her eye, where a tear escaped. She swiped at the tear. Can't remember. How often does he beat you? Every day, with his fists. She lifted her blouse, exposing black and blue ribs and back. But I knew, not the only... not the only thing is bruised. When are you going to kill that bastard? Tonight, on his way home from the firehouse. He'll be drunk. I know. You'll tell me when it's done? I'll need to collect my due, won't I? I'd picked out a dark, quiet spot, a block from the firehouse, and waited. I knew his route home. I'd been watching him for a while. He always carried his last beer with him, which gave me the idea. Midnight, shift over, he came stumbling up the pavement. I squeezed into a break in a hedge, deep in shadow. He stopped opposite me, tipped up the beer bottle. I let him drain the last drop, before plunging my short-bladed knife into the side of his neck. I jumped back. His meaty hand clamped the wound, came away bloody. He stared at his hand, surprised, confused, and fell to his knees, Blood pumped from the hole in his neck. He slumped, rolled over on his back, jerked and spasmed, dead. Peace on earth now for some. I broke the beer bottle and gouged the side of his neck, disguising the knife wound, hiding any trace. After wiping down the broken bottle, I placed it in his bloody hand, job done. Before going to collect the second half of my payment, I went to my motel to clean up, wash the blood away. Pleased to say when we met for the final time I made her laugh again, but later, both of us naked and dancing, 
to a mellow Sinatra tune in her dark, warm bedroom. I didn't force her the sound she made. It sounded like laughter, only different. And much later still, as I nestled between her breasts, felt the rise and fall of her chest. I listened to the beat of another solid gold heart. And I knew, thanks to me, this wouldn't be her last laugh. A Conversation with a Stranger by Aidan Thorne What is it you do, lad? I'm a paramedic. Good man. I was in the services myself. Fifteen years. Royal Navy. Billy looked at the former sailor with respect. There were so many questions, but the sailor got him first. So what brings you into town, lad? Little bit of shopping. The missus has taken my daughter to get a dress. She's got a party invite, so obviously she needs a new dress. Apparently just not done for a seven-year-old to be seen in the same outfit two parties in a row. Billy rolled his eyes, but it was clear that he really didn't mind spending the money on his daughter. The man sitting next to him smiled warmly. A family man. You cherish them. Families are wonderful. Billy looked into it into eyes filled with memories. The conversation had taken his companion to a happier past. There was a flicker of a smile before tears came. Can I ask what happened? Billy asked. He had the sense the man wanted to talk. There was a fire. I was at sea. My wife and boys were asleep in our home. Reports of the fridge freezer was faulty. The smoke took them before they woke. The tears now rolled down his face and soaked into his beard. Billy couldn't bear to imagine the horror. The street buzzed with weekend shoppers. They paid no mind to the men on the bench. Billy's job brought tragedy most weeks. But off his guard... On a Sunday afternoon, Billy was touched by the tale. He put comforting hand on the sailor's arm, a futile gesture, but a gesture all the same. I'm sorry. The sailor nodded. Thank you for speaking with me. Most people get up and walk away if I open my mouth. In fact, most people don't even sit down when they see me. He started gathering what remained of his life and putting it into a trolley. There wasn't much. A stained sleeping bag and a small sack. He stood on tattered shoes. Billy got a sense that he'd become embarrassed to have burdened a stranger. Please, is there anything I can do for you? Billy asked. Do you need money? Can I get you some food? The Navy man was warm by the offer. No, thank you. You keep your money. Spoil that daughter of yours. He turned and shuffled off, pushing his trolley. Billy watched as people gave the man a wide berth, as if afraid they'd catch something. He watched him walk up the street until he couldn't see him any more. Daddy, why are you crying? Billy's daughter stood in front of him. He wiped his eyes, reached out and hugged her tight. He looked up to see a concerned look on his wife's face, reached out for a, out a hand for hers and squeezed it tight. I got a beautiful dress for the party, Daddy, Billy's daughter mumbled into his chest. That's great, sweetheart. I'm so pleased. Dope on a Rope by Darren Sant. As he hung upside down from the Humber Bridge on a petrol-soaked length of rope, Pete Howell mused about how his day couldn't get much worse. His hands, which were tied behind his back, were starting to go numb. As a wasp landed on his face, he realised that, yes, upon reflection, his day could get worse. The rope creaked as he wriggled 
and started blowing at the wasp. The bitterly cold water of the Humber below seemed to call for him to join it. He had plenty of time to consider the events that had led him to this situation. The previous day. Pete sang along at the top of his voice. Freddie Mercury accompanied him and stated loudly and clearly his intention to break free. Pete's pleasure centres fizzed nicely from the Peruvian marching powder he'd just snorted. He put his foot to the floor and swerved along, twisting the wheel to the beat. A white transit van overtook him, taking as wide a berth as possible. In the passenger seat, a thick-set guy in a luminous day-glow work vest stuck two fingers up to Pete and mouthed the word wanker. Pete headed towards Hull, oblivious to this, as the rising sun kissed the grey sky like a long-lost lover. Kelly looked at the traitorous scumbag he'd once called a friend, Seth Walker, known as Old Seth to his friends, on account of his prematurely grey goatee, was in bad shape. Bloody, battered, and with an arm hanging slackly by his side, he was shackled securely to a metal bar set into the wall. Splatters of blood surrounded Seth, and various bloodied instruments of torture lay nearby on the floor. A cheese grater looked particularly well used with scraps of raw flesh still hanging from it. If he were given a time machine, Seth wouldn't want the lottery numbers for the coming week. He wouldn't want to warn people of upcoming disasters. Seth would mostly want not to have knocked on Kelly's door when he was out. He would not have entered the house. He would not have entered Kelly's hot little Italian wife several times, all over the house. He would not have been there taking her from behind as she bent over the kitchen table and squealed, Yes, Big Daddy, give it to me harder. Just as Kelly has entered the kitchen. On reflection, he wanted very much not to have done that. Kelly once more kicked Walker in the knackers, decided he was now tired of it. He stubbed his cigar out on Seth's bloody chest, only sighed when Seth screamed. He was even getting bored of the screams. We'll finish fucking Romeo here when I get back, he informed his loyal henchman. Gus who had just nodded and went back to filling in his, his Mensa entry form. Like most deranged criminal psychopaths, Kelly had a secret love, and it wasn't a stripper or a model. Her name was Rosie, and she was a little black pedigree pug. People might laugh behind his back to see the huge muscle-bound man walk in the wee creature. Those who valued their kneecaps didn't do it to his face. He grabbed her lead, and stroking her head gently led the wheezing, snuffling creature Outside, Dover Street off English Street was home to a number of small industrial units that were ideal for the dark purposes of the local criminal fraternity. They were so obviously used for illegal purposes they might as well have had swag hidden here in large neon letters across the front. The smell of fish from the docks hit Kelly like a left hook from a prize fighter. The biting November air caused little Rosie to shiver like a junkie going through cold turkey. In unspoken agreement, they both decided it would be a short walk. Sniffing up the remaining few traces of bouncing powder from his nostril, Pete indicated and exited the dual carriageway just before the Clive Sullivan Way flyover. Still weaving and enjoying the, for once, traffic-free roads, he shimmied between the two lanes as he headed down the roundabout under the flyover. Pete went round the empty roundabout and exited quickly, turning into English Street. The ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead by the crash test dummies blasted out of his Citroen stereo system and he again 
swerved along to the tune. Sudden pothole caused the CD to jump and he looked down in annoyance. Pete saw his huge pupils widened as he lost control and mounted the curb, narrowly missing a dog water. Dog walker. With a sickening thud, he clipped a little black dog, sending her flying through the air into a wall. A little flat face made flat face made flatter still by the impact. Pete careered into a wall of a cafe called the Munch Box, which luckily at this early hour was empty. The impact inflated the airbag and he groaned as he kissed the plastic. With a wrench, his doors open, he was yanked moaning from the car. Thank, he managed to say, before a fist smashed hard like a pile driver into his face. Kelly punched him again and again. The last thing Pete saw before losing consciousness was the prone and shattered form of a little black dog lying in a puddle of blood. As Kelly stood over the battered form of Pete, he thought this really hasn't been my fucking day. He reached into his pocket and fished out his mobile. Quickly dialed a number. Gus, get your arse onto English Street now and bring the car pronto. Whereabouts, boss? Oh, I think you'll see me, Gus. He walked slowly over to gather up the corpse of his beloved Rosie and gathered her up tenderly into his arms. Kelly looked grim as he stared down at Pete. His ugly features contorted into a sneer as he whispered, This is for Rosie. Kelly slowly lowered his cigar to the rope. Petrol caught and the flame rushed towards Pete faster than a Brazilian striker on speed. Pete's last thought as he plunged headfirst towards the dark sandy waters of the Humber was, Who the hell is Rosie? By This Time Tomorrow by Bill Baber In the moments just before sunrise, a man in faded work clothes with a tattered duffel bag slung over his shoulder stood under a sky streaked with salmon and ochre. Calloused hands were jammed deep into his pants pockets in an attempt to ward off the early morning chill, his steamy breath hanging in the air like shards of broken glass before drifting away. He looked to the north, toward a far range of mountains silhouetted against the coming day. Long ago, as a younger man, he had ventured to the other side of them. He recalled the country as being fine, with rolling green hills covered in oak and pine trees, and in the bottom of the steep canyons, there were small, secretive streams teeming with trout. There had been a woman with hair colored like summer wheat and eyes the same shade of blue as a June sky. Sometimes he dreamed of the woman in the place, remembering the small, bright house they shared. He could hear her singing softly, could smell coffee and frying bacon, and when he awoke, sadness washed over him like waves breaking on a lonely beach. They talked of children, of building a future together. Before that could happen, the work gave out. For work only done by a man's hands, the pay had been quite good, but there was nothing else there he could do nothing he felt she deserved. So he drifted south, following the only kind of work he knew. He made a solemn promise to return, but never did. For a while, there were letters back and forth, becoming more infrequent as time passed. He missed the woman in the fine country, although deep down, he was always afraid of disappointing her. He followed the work he did to different places, and from time to time, there were other women, although he never dreamed of them. 
Now the work was gone everywhere. The last of it had been here. He didn't know what he would do. It was all he had ever done, all he knew. He made the decision to go north, telling himself it was to see the country again, thinking it would be good to lie under an oak tree in the tall summer grass, to fish in the cool blue stillness of the canyons. But mostly, he admitted to himself as he walked toward the lonely highway, stretching toward those distant mountains like a long silver ribbon, he wanted to return to see if she was still there and to see if perhaps she still remembered or if she ever dreamed about the time they shared. The sun peaked above the eastern horizon as he reached the highway. Far to the south, he saw a semi coming his way. With any luck, by this time tomorrow, he would know.